Welcome back to another episode of our companion series. On this episode, we are joined once again by Dr. Kelly Vogt and by Dr. Murad Hamid to discuss death and dying in surgery. We focus our discussion around the topic of medical assistance in dying or MAID and use that as a focal point to branch out and think further about how we can better prepare patients and their surgeons for discussions around end-of-life care. We love to hear your thoughts. How does MAID get operationalized in your hospital? And how does your surgical service interact with MAID? Email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. So in 2016, Canadian Parliament enacted legislation Bill C-14, allowing eligible Canadians to request medical assistance in dying. At the time, eligible meant you had to be at least 18 years of age, be competent to make that decision, and in fact, request it without without anybody mentioning it to you, basically. Have a grievous and irremediable medical condition with death that is reasonably foreseeable. And again, make your request voluntarily. In September 2019, a charter challenge was launched in Quebec, specifically challenging the requirement that death be reasonably foreseeable and the need for final consent for this procedure. This led to proposed amendments to the Criminal Code, Bill C-7, which, amongst other things, would remove the requirement for death to be reasonably foreseeable and allow a waiver of final consent for patients who may lose capacity before MAID can be performed. Bill C-7 was passed in the House of Commons and is currently being debated in the Senate, where it's expected to face many amendments and, in fact, a deadline of today. Before we embark embark upon this discussion, we want to be clear that we recognize MAID can be very controversial. We respect that there are many differing opinions and viewpoints on this topic, but recognize that it's part of our legislation, and we want to specifically explore the intersection between MAID and surgery. We've also purposely not had a discussion about our views on the topic before recording tonight. And just to provide a little bit of context to this discussion, the first annual report on MAID in 2019 was published by Health Canada. And in that year, over 65% of patients who received MAID had a cancer diagnosis as their main underlying diagnosis. About 10% had respiratory, 10% neurologic, and 10% cardiovascular conditions. The average age of patients was 75 years, and over 80% had received palliative care services as well. The most commonly cited reason for seeking MAID was loss of ability to engage in meaningful life activities and loss of ability to perform activities of daily living. Of the over 1,200 physicians providing MAID in our country at that time, 65% were family physicians, 9% palliative medicine physicians, 5% anesthesiologists, and surgeons fit in the less than 5% of quote-unquote other physicians. Of note, legislation requires a 10-day waiting period between consent and the procedure. However, in 2019, over a third of patients had this window shortened, primarily due to provider concerns they would lose capacity to provide final consent. And so with that background in mind, I wanted to start by asking each of you where you see MAID fitting into the world of surgical practice. And maybe I'll start with you, Chad. With my practice, which of course is, is trauma and severely injured patients like you guys, but also the oncology side of things, I would say that both of those categories are very, very different. And the truth is that many of the pancreatic uh, cancer patients, less so the liver cancer patients, but certainly on the pancreas side, we do have these discussions almost daily in clinic and sometimes many times a day in clinic. 
and it's always been interesting as a trainee and then you know starting trying to work away on my own with partners initially the different ways that people frame that topic of dying uh the different things that they bring from their own experience and their own belief system into that discussion and as as we all know um the ability to steer patients in one direction or the other potentially in some cases um you know i can't say that we engage made as a formal process very often in the, in the oncology clinic space but it certainly comes up on a regular basis so for for that side of things uh it's something that i have to address many times a week um on the trauma critical care side i think it comes up uh, a fair bit less um certainly in the younger patients um although i think we all see many many suicide attempts that in some ways uh cloud this and 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 uh are a rationale for some of the concern that comes from opposing views of it too I think you made some really interesting points there, um, particularly around sort of the different scopes of your practice. Uh, maybe, Morad, I'll ask your opinion from the trauma and critical care side. Thanks, Kelly. Um, in trauma, I, I think made what never crosses my mind. Uh, that's always an acute event. And uh, sometimes we play very long odds um, in, in the hope, in the expectation, and the hope that we can um, we can beat those odds. So it's always uh, a full commitment um, to survival. Um, in acute care surgery, it's, it's a similar kind of thing. Um, MAID doesn't cross my mind at all. Um, occasionally we do um, we do ACS oncology cases. Um, and sometimes this is done with palliative intent, you know, for example, like a malignant bowel obstruction. But even these patients uh, tend to do well in the short term, and we often hand them back to medical oncology and uh, eventually palliative care. Um, where dying becomes uh, more common is in critical care. And uh, again, you know, the mindset in critical care for most intensivists, I think, is a very much of a survival mindset of um, resuscitating and being aggressive and asking questions later, um, asking these deep existential questions later on. Um, and so we do tend to play very long odds there. And again, MAID doesn't come up very often. And I think we tend to push the limits in terms of uh, achieving um, uh, at endpoints until the point of futility. And futility is becoming, um, uh, you know, a, a smaller and smaller area as we have more aggressive means of sustaining life. Um, but eventually we do hit a point of futility and usually at that point MAID doesn't come up either because patients simply can't live without the most invasive forms of life support. So um, Kelly, it doesn't, MAID doesn't cross my mind very often. Um, I do very much believe in patient autonomy and their um, right to consider that option, but I find it doesn't come up as much in, in my practice, uh, and I probably do need to think about it more. Maybe for our, our, our listeners, I wonder, Kelly and Morad and Amir, if it's worth trying to define or at least giving your impression the difference between withdrawal of care in a critical care setting and formal made uh, in or outside of a critical care setting. I think that's um, a great point, Chad, that probably does deserve some clarification. And, and for me, in terms of the legislation, I think it's uh, it's fairly it's a fairly 
uh, clean break or, or easy delineation. And that really is around the ability of the patient themselves, not their family in their stead, but the patient themselves to request voluntarily medical assistance in dying, be able to be competent for that consent, both at the time that they request it and at least 10 days later when the procedure is performed and to go through with it at that stage. So for me, when I think of withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies, by and large, in the critical care setting, what I'm thinking about is the ventilator, vasopressors, the types of things that we envision. And in that circumstance, you can easily see how the patient is not able to voluntarily ask for a medical assistance in dying procedure or able to consent for the consideration of that and ultimately the procedure. So that's, to me, where the difference lies. It seems like uh, from that line of thinking, th- those criteria would uh, would rarely be all completely met in a critical care setting. I completely agree with you. Chad, do you have any other thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's great. I, I think there is some confusion as to, as to what the difference is. So, so that's perfect. You know, patient consent is one part of it. The other thing I think that I'm sure you'll get into with with the current Quebec court challenge, of course, is the the root of the underlying issue, the disease or the disability or the the limitation or the viewpoint. Um, Is it something that's, quote unquote, fixable? Uh, Is it not? To Morad's point, is it acute or is it chronic? Um, Those are the other elements, I think, that come into our mindset when we're differentiating the two. Yeah, and I completely agree, and, and I think we will get to that. I'm just curious, before we proceed, from Amir's perspective, given uh, that you trained, at least in part, in the time where this legislation came in, I wonder if your perspective is somewhat different than those of us who were already attending surgeons when this legislation passed. Did you encounter this much in your training? So I think I'd echo what you have all said, that it didn't didn't has not really come up, uh, I think, very much. Uh, in training that I can recall. And I think it is important to kind of really dissect out some of these terms and forgive the bad pun. Uh, but like, it, I think it, it is different to think about, you know, end of life discussions versus made. Because I think actually now, you know, you, uh, you know, beating being mortal was written by Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon. And I think, you know, many of us now recognize how important it is to have these discussions around uh, end of life care, what matters to patients and, you know, sort of what, what would be meaningful things for them to have and to tailor their uh, therapy accordingly. But it's a very different mindset to actually refer someone to have, you know, medically assisted uh, dying. And I'd argue that it is very antithetical, particularly for surgeons and uh, intensivists, as you pointed out, because, you know, a lot of what we do is trying to do things you know, when the whole mindset is is about fixing people or curing things, it is very difficult to kind of completely change that tack. Not not saying that that I don't think that there is far more to healing people than than steel, but uh, I, I do think it's a very difficult mental shift that you'd have to make. Yeah, I really agree with you, and I think what we've sort of touched on but haven't really said is that. Not only are our definitions, but the legal definition, I think, makes it complicated um, for us to understand. And the fact that it's still being debated and amendments are, are being um, 
tabled and the legislation is changing, I think makes it a bit of a moving target. And I suspect that at least for for myself and, and other physicians that that has led to some hesitancy in terms of approaching these types of conversations with, with patients that I've encountered. Do you guys have a formal service in your hospitals for MATE? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. And I, I might push back to with Amir a little bit, uh, which I know he loves, but yeah, I mean, we've referred dozens of patients, dozens and dozens of patients um, through our clinics, again, with pancreas cancer. Um, some of them are preoperative scenarios where they, um, you know, they can't be resected. We don't have a good treatment plan for them. And the medical oncologist can only really offer them a, a, a quite a limited uh, systemic therapy or no systemic therapy. Those are patients that, that tend to try and uh, are often ask about it. And then there's the patient that you resect and that has recurred um, with really no additional options options other than palliative systemic therapy as well, palliative chemo. Um, those patients are another relatively large group that go. So, you know, there's no question it depends on the cancer you're dealing with, but, but we do do it a lot. Um, and it fits quite naturally, quite honestly, in the discussion, either up front or at the back end that you have with these patients over that idea or the concept of dying. Um, I mean, that's probably a whole other discussion of podcasting itself, but I I'm tend to be very blunt about it. I usually say, here's the scenario, here's where you're at, and here's what's going to happen, um, the time frame of which I can't tell you because I don't have a crystal ball, but here's what it looks like. Now, you're going to die of this problem. How do you want to die? Um, do you want to be at home? Do you know, fight it with passion? Are you going to relax about it i mean it, you know it's 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 striking how different people are as we all know from one example to the next and you know it's something i think certainly all of us insurgents in general don't judge but it's really essential that that we keep that central to our interaction because you know the reality is we all have friends and family that have died unexpectedly or in a short period of time versus maybe a longer period of time and we'd like to sort of um, think about how, how we would do that or how we would behave in those scenarios. But until you're in it, you really truly like everything else in life don't know. And, you know, I personally in my life have had people very close to me who I thought would really die calmly and with passion, sorry, with that, with elegance and grace and went raging into the night and then vice versa as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we certainly use it a lot. Um, unfortunately, as far as a specific team uh, in Calgary, absolutely. They're a remarkable group of people who are broken down into teams on call, basically. And once that referral is made, the patient mentions it, you think it's appropriate, the referral goes out. Um, I don't mean this in a, in a cavalier way, but they sort of swoop in and they really do take over from, from that point forward. And I'll, I'll just comment that, you know, the individuals at all different uh, job titles within these teams, at least from our observation locally in Calgary, is that they are, they are absolutely superb at it. And they're very good at differentiating almost as a psychiatrist, sort of, um, the differences in the drivers of these people and, and, and whether it's reasonable or unreasonable or is it related to something that's temporary as opposed to truly chronic. That's great. Morad, is there a team in Vancouver? Uh, yeah, Kelly, there's a team in our health region, Vancouver Coastal. There is a, they, they put in a lot of thought and there's a big flurry of activity when 
when it first came out. And I now I think there's a, a fairly standardized um, pathway for people to uh, consider and request made. Um, and uh, I actually encountered this, uh, I was just thinking a few months ago, um, I was rounding and we had a patient with a malignant bowel obstruction and he was still not old. Uh, and uh, he, before we could even discuss the therapeutic options, he requested made and he made a very passionate argument about how he had lived a great life and he was surrounded by love and he was ready to call it. And uh, I must say we were very much still in the intervention and survival surgical mindset. And um, it was, it was a bit of a uncomfortable standoff for a while. And uh, as a matter of fact, when we rounded, we were actually, we were actually rounding with um one of our senior administrators who was with us for sort of a ride along. And uh, she helped us a lot with navigating the system and, and uh, talking to him. But uh, it was a, it was a, it was almost a bit of a, not a confrontation, but a, opposing viewpoints about, about the right path forward. That's super interesting. Can I push you on that a little bit? What was it that made you uncomfortable about that situation? You know, I, I guess I saw somebody who still had a lot of vitality um, and um, uh, somebody who still um, was communicating well and who still was had family and reasons to, to live. And I also saw this as a surgical challenge. Um, he had a, a locally invasive malignancy, but I thought that it, it could be um, resectable. Um, this was, I think, in the context of some end-stage liver disease. And I thought that we have the ability not only to resect this, but also to, you know, finesse him through and support his organ systems and maybe achieve uh, uh, some decent length and quality of life. Uh, so I guess I viewed it as a human opportunity and maybe in some ways a, a clinical and technical challenge. And so my, my instinct was to try to advise him to um, to engage in the intervention and see how it turns out. I think that's um, so interesting because I think that a lot of the proponents of, of medical assistance in dying um, really focus on that choice, that idea that, uh, you know, individuals have the right to make a choice what their death looks like and the time of that death. Um, that is, you know, outside what we as healthcare providers suggest to them. And, and I think that that ability, you know, the, the story you just told really speaks to that conflict that I think a lot of, of healthcare providers feel when faced with similar situations. When we met this patient, um, you know, I had some uh, advanced warning that he was a difficult patient and he was not wanting to comply with um, testing and uh, and he was requesting made and he want, and he wanted the form, but he wasn't difficult at all. Uh, he was just really thoughtful and um, uh, he really wanted to have uh, a say and some control um, at this stage of his life. So it was interesting. Uh, but the initial perception was he was not complying with, uh, you know, with the usual course that one would expect. As most people who veer off the beaten path typically are called difficult. I'm not terribly surprised to hear that. I wanted to bring it back to emergency surgery and trauma a little bit. Um, it's interesting. One of the first papers uh, that really described these made hospital-based programs 
described the program at uh, University Health Network in Toronto. And, and they specifically discuss some of what we've talked about tonight, discouraging initiation of MAID in an actively dying patient, um, really for fear that it may compromise symptom management since patients may refuse opioids um, so that they can retain capacity for consent and needlessly consume limited energy and time of patients and their families at the end of their life. And, and in that paper, they argued that um, you know palliative sedation to alleviate intolerable suffering really is the way to go. And I think, you know, reading between the lines as an emergency surgeon, that really suggests that there's not a tremendous role for MAID in emergency general surgery or trauma care. Um, what I've seen in, in practice, though, is different. And we actually uh, not, well, I'm an author on the paper, but the, the lead author uh, is our nurse practitioner and the senior author, one of our critical care physicians, who are presenting our series of made in trauma patients, and it's the only one we know of that's published. And the stories of these patients are tremendously interesting um, in that these are patients who all voluntarily ask, uh, ask for made at varying times after their trauma. And the biggest thing I think that links them all together really is their eventual understanding of what their quality of life would be after this acute, tremendous change. And I think that the spirit of the charter challenge and the amendment really relates to the idea that some individuals may actually see made as a form of advanced care planning and that they potentially have a right to make decisions about made before their death is reasonably foreseeable. That concept really resonates with me personally. Um, many people who know me are aware of my belief that society society would really benefit from a well-thought-out public education campaign around this concept that everyone actually eventually dies. And in some cases, that's a concept that's difficult to crystallize, in them, and in others, it isn't. For example, in the older adult patient who arrives in hospital with a bowel obstruction, but also with a long list of comorbidities and self-acknowledged poor quality of life because of them, I think the discussion decision-making process becomes much easier if you think about it ahead of time. And I wonder if this discussion around MAID might actually be a way that we can encourage those types of discussions to occur. That was a long-winded way of, of looking for your um, thoughts on how do we approach the emergency surgical patient who has a terminal diagnosis and should we be mentioning MAID to them more than we do? Yeah, I think this, those are very interesting questions. I think there's there's two things I would say. I think the the charter uh, or the, the legislation proposed that's going on in Quebec right now is interesting because when when you change the the underlying kind of tenor of this bill, which is that you know up until this point it's been people who have a very foreseeable death. I think that is a sort of a very different question than someone who's death is not imminent or from our best medical knowledge isn't uh, very foreseeable. Um, that's a very kind of different and to me a very challenging discussion because you know, I always think of this New England Journal paper, I think it's a New England Journal, where they, they looked at quality of life of patients who had a spinal cord injury like I think one or two years out and it's almost identical to their quality of life or very similar quality of life to what they were like pre-injured. And so I really get a little concerned that 
people who are have mental health issues who are, who are suffering acute crisis of depression for example uh, if they might be you know prone to having this sort of uh, i don't know if abuse is the right word but perhaps prematurely deciding on this option i think for acute care general surgery patients i think absolutely that's something uh, that we need to talk about more and and we all i think we can recognize that we need to do better i mean we had a patient uh, not too long ago on the colorectal service uh, who unfortunately had a very quick uh, sort of recurrence after uh, an operation for colorectal cancer and you know like she wasn't imminently dying but and and we were all sort of stunned when she said you know i, I want made and then you know it, it so happened that events transpired that she ended up getting a bowel obstruction she ended up you know having an emergent operation and then she ended up you know needing subsequent emergency operations and and passing away anyways and so you really in some ways i felt quite kind of disturbed or kind of sad about that because she had sort of indicated that you know i don't really want to go through all of this and yet you know we, we it's very hard to, to turn those wheels but we need to think about uh doing that more often uh, and the second thing is i just want to say how i think how important it is i think for all of us to have these discussions about death i mean not to get too philosophical here but you know the the stoics and certainly in the muslim tradition there's a long tradition of you know talking about death and we 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 use this word morbid like that's a very morbid thing to say and morbid you know um, literally ha- has to do with death but i think it's so important for us to enjoy life to actually think about death as an inevitable consequence and something that we have to face sort of on our own terms so i i actually I love that idea and I think it's the part of this whole discussion is actually changing the way that, that we think about an approach and, and maybe even embrace that. So sorry sorry to such a long-winded answer but uh you know I'm so I feel passionate about sort of both of those points. I hear you. I feel passionate about them too. So no apologies necessary. Do you think Chad that we'll ever get to a time where these conversations whether you 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 know buy into this concept or not but these conversations occur with the same frequency in our trauma patients and emergency patients as they do in your oncology clinic? You know, I, to answer your initial question, yes, yes, and yes. Like, I think you're exactly dead on. We need a large national public advocacy discussion uh, and program to talk about dying. Um, and, and it has to be national. It has to be Canadian-made and Canadian-delivered because, of course, I think all of us, uh, at least three out of the four of us, have uh, worked for extended periods of time in the U.S. And the underlying uh, view of things of this topic in particular is totally different. So we need a Canadian solution. Uh, you know, it's I, I get that it's extremely hard to mechanize and to make happen, but it's quite nuts to me that there's never been an attempt, at least I know about, to do this. And you look at what's going on around us now with COVID. I mean, just imagine if we had a more reasonable global understanding of the process of dying in this country when COVID hit. Because the reality is, and this may sound harsh, but I I think it's probably true. When you look at the behavior of many, many, many people in the community across this country, and certainly even more in the U.S., in terms of not wearing masks, in terms of having house parties, in terms of gathering 
all these things that we know are high-risk activities and then filling up our ICUs and filling up our hospital uh, beds with sick COVID patients. And then that leads to, as you know, the downstream effects of canceling elective surgeries, canceling non-elective urgent cancer surgeries. Um, you know, people do die because of those community decisions. And it's one thing to say, well, you don't have to wear a mask. You can behave as you want. But if you come to the hospital and you're 85 years old, and I'm just making that number up, of course, then we will not be able to treat you. I mean, that's an extreme uh, tangent on this overall concept. But it seems like it would probably be a lot less of a, of a, of a run or a stretch to get to that more nuanced, real-time change in paradigm shifting change in decision if we already had a basic level of understanding to your point and and it's clear we don't right like how many patients do we talk to that don't have advanced directives haven't thought about this haven't discussed this with their family doc their specialist their family it's absolute to be honest the word in, in my mind anyway maybe it's overstated to you guys i don't know but it's chaos um and i agree we need to have some sort of discussion and campaign nationally. I think, I mean, it's tragic. It's so difficult. We've all been there in the middle of the night, having that conversation with a patient, if they're able to participate or their family member where death is imminent. And that possibility has never been considered. We are doing a disservice to the patients that we care for and their families. And I cut you off from here, you're up. Sorry, I, I, I just want to, you know, push back a little bit in the sense that, you know, Atul Gawande, when I was doing my master's, actually came to give us a talk uh, and he talked a lot about sort of the work that he had done to write Being Mortal. What struck me, you know, the, in, the, in the usual Atul Gawande fashion, he had, he's come up with a checklist about, uh, you know, having end-of-life care and, and published on it and all those things. But what struck me in, in the discussion of what, uh, uh, that, that he brought up is that, you know, much of what we're trying to do here is actually about culture change on a, like a, like a national level. Like what, in what part of our lives do we really even sort of acknowledge our mortality? Like, uh, you know, all of our, all of our lives are, are increasingly caught up in, uh, somewhat again, uh, not to go on a, on a very wild tangent, but I, I think it is germane to the discussion that a lot of our lives are caught up in incredibly superficial things and is exacerbated by social media. So, you know, as much as I, I love the idea of having a, a campaign to get people to think about the, their end of life decisions, I, I really struggle with this, the thought of how effective that would be. Because essentially what you're asking people to do is to consider their mortality. And, and we all know that Blaise Pascal said that, you know, the, the most dangerous thing that you can do is to, to have, a, or the most brave some, thing that someone can do is to sit alone with themselves for an hour and think. Yeah, in an empty room. And so, uh, you know, part of that is just facing your own mortality. So I, I don't know how how successful we would be in, in a campaign like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I am, I'm more optimistic about people maybe than that. Um, you know, we have strong public advocacy um, and prevention programs and injury in particular across the country and across the world that have huge, uh, massive public health positive effects and benefits and they're measured and we know this i don't personally see why dying is any different and you know we've interviewed tim pollock as you know who's done a bunch of work on this and we talked about that on a podcast and dr gawande we haven't had on yet 
but um, you know, there is nuances to this. I, I don't necessarily think you have to come to a conclusion and be 45 steps into the process of if, if I'm dying this way, then this happens that way, then that happens. But I think a, a baseline small amount of thought into how you want this to look is no different than planning for your financial future, for your family's future. It should be in the same same ballpark discussion. Now, who initiates that? Well, the reality is it's probably the primary care uh, network and, and, and givers, um, physicians, um, that probably uh, uh, should be and uh, should is a strong word, but maybe uh, could be more interested in that, um, despite the pressures that they have in their practices. It, you know, as as Kelly and Morad and, and you and I all know, and and people listening know, you know, at two in the morning this morning when I'm having this conversation on the phone, uh, twelve hours into an admission for an acute acute injury, it it's a, it's hard. It's a it's a it's a problem. So even if that family this morning had had a little bit of conversation about it, it would have put us in a much better spot. So I, I think people are capable of it. I think, you know, to your point, some of it is religious based, some of it is not. Um, but I think we can all do it. And, and and again, it speaks to what that campaign would look like, how it initiates discussion, how it engages people, how it's presented. And, you know, it's really smart people like Kelly, who, who probably have a much better idea than than myself as to how to deliver that. Oh, you give me too much credit. I just, uh, I'm the ideas person in this, in this, and I'm, I'm not unique in coming up with these ideas, but I, I do agree with you that I think, you know, Canadian citizens have the capacity to do this. And, and I think some of what's happening with these proposed amendments to the legislation will allow these conversations to happen in a way that isn't entirely tied to a specific event, a trauma or a cancer diagnosis or whatever that is. And, and I do think that might help us. Morad, we haven't come back to you in a little bit, wondering your thoughts <laughs> as we get closer. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kelly. I, I think in, in any um, complex situation, um, it, it's resolved um, by considering and balancing different forces. And sometimes I think that the, we, as surgeons, represent um, the surgical mindset represents like a more of a you know, aggressive and life prolonging force in this discussion. Um, and I, you know, um, I, I was thinking about a couple of patients in recent memory, one with a, um, who was 90 years old with a uh, obstructing uh, cancer at his hepatic flexure, who was told the year before that he was not a good candidate for surgery. And he lived on with this in good health. And we, we encountered him with the, when the obstruction completed and, um, we actually, after a lot of deliberation and conferring with anesthesia and ICU, we decided to uh, do a right hemiclectomy. And, and he had another year with his wife and family. Uh, and another case we had with a patient with a bowel obstruction who I was told was not a good candidate for surgery because of uh, dementia and congestive heart failure. Um, both of these conditions on, on further review were, were pretty mild. Um, patient had a good quality of life and had a single adhesive band uh, at surgery and um, left the hospital shortly after after an operation for that. So, you know, life is so precious. And um, I think that 
sometimes the um, the the uh, the the boundaries and the perceptions of quality of life can shift, and we don't know how that might play out. Um, so I think, you know, despite all of the wisdom in this discussion, I think it's still maybe important to come with a at the beginning, at least to represent that surgical mindset, to represent sort of um, the fact that the, the uh, idea that we may not know how things will play out. And at these 2 a.m. discussions, um, if we are representing that view, then then maybe also say that maybe it's worth a shot. But if things don't respond as we expect, maybe in two or three days, um, then we can transition um, to to palliation or end of life. Uh, compassionate care but I don't know what do you guys think about that like maybe having a sort of an aggressive upfront mindset but having a discussion about to, to you know to change direction quickly if um if the course isn't playing out as we hoped and in my in in my opinion that that sort of gives people gives people and their physiology a little bit of the benefit of the doubt but still um, introduces this as an outlet um, if we find we're not achieving our goals. I, I think that's a great way to frame it more. And I think that's sort of what, what we do. And I think that's what you're saying in a, in a very humble way, right? We, we see these patients all the time and we say, you need an emergency operation. It's a big deal. You're super sick. You may not be able to get extubated. This is what it's going to mean for you. What do you want to do when you're two or three days in and we're not be able to talk and you're on all this life support? At what point then do you want to shut it down versus carry on? And I, I, I like to think that a lot of us, no matter what our setting in this country, are pretty good at doing that. My experience in the U.S. night, I would bet it echoes yours and Kelly's, was was not like that. Uh, it was sort of pushed to the ends of the earth, spend as much money as you need to, do not stop under any circumstances. And I always felt um, a little bit foreign in that in that world, in that discussion. Uh, respected it, you know, uh, for sure, but the, the baseline demeanor seemed to be different amongst physicians and patients in Canada versus the U.S. Well, Chad, I completely agree and that. Um, you know, was echoed in, in my fellowship experience as well. And, but certainly in my practice, I agree with what both of you said. We do do that. And I think the, the patient who comes in who needs an emergency operation, and we're talking about whether they'll, whether or not they'll be extubated. I don't, there's always room for improvement, but I think that by and large, um, as emergency surgeons, we are used to and relatively comfortable with those conversations where I think we have room to grow are the patients who are perhaps slightly less sick, where there is not a clear-cut need to do an operation that night, um, who have a diagnosis that may compound their baseline physiology or medical uh, comorbidities or whatever it is in their life that's making it difficult for them. And those are the patients where I think we have an opportunity and an obligation to maybe discuss the options, the breadth of options, including proceeding with aggressive surgical management, including palliation and including medical assistance in dying. I do think we could improve in that realm. Last word to you, Amir. Yeah, I think that the, the biggest challenge is always time, both for you and for the patient, right? So it's always ideal when you actually have time to think and to talk with patients. And for us as clinicians, I think the, the the hard part sometimes 
uh, and I can say particularly as a resident, when you have like a hundred pages and, a, you know, you know, the next patient and the next patient, and the next patient you see is it's so important to realize, to slow yourself down and just realize like this, this is actually the moment where you could, you could make a difference. And this is not just another night for, for someone. This is like really a, a defining moment in their, in their life and their death. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.